Welcome to the Well-Nurtured Brain, where we delve into the exciting world of brain health. Every episode, we bring the latest research and expert insights on mental and neurological health and offer practical tips and strategies on how to nurture your brain and optimize its function. From mental wellness to neurological health, we'll cover it all so you can become skilled in the care and feeding of the most important organ in your body, the one that makes you you, your brain. Welcome to episode 21 of the Well-Nurtured Brain. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Hutchison, naturopathic physician with over 20 years of experience helping folks with mental health and neurological challenges live healthy lives. And today, 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 our Christmas holiday gift for you is a lovely discussion with a longtime colleague of mine, Dr. Jamie DeMello, who is one of the co-founders of Evolve Medical. And I will introduce him in a moment, but I did want to first say a great big thank you to all my listeners this year. I am so glad you've been on this journey with me, and I really appreciate all your time invested in listening and giving feedback. We are going to be launching a new season in January, and when we do, we are going to be asking, what the heck do you guys want to hear about? So... Sit back, relax, and listen to Dr. DeMello and myself have a lovely conversation on metabolic health and blood sugar regulation and how it affects brain health overall. I want to welcome Dr. Jamie DeMello to the Well-Nurtured Brain. Dr. Jamie is a naturopathic physician and educator with over 19 years of practice in Victoria, B.C., and he has a passion for supporting people with diabetes and prediabetes improve their blood sugar control through evidence-based lifestyle practices. In fact, he's so passionate about this that he co-founded a group called Evolve Medical, and they are a unique online lifestyle medicine program that combines integrated medical care, technology, and health coaching to help folks with diabetes and prediabetes. He is also a dear colleague of mine at Acacia Health, and we've been working together for a long time, at least like, I think, 16 years now. Mm. So welcome, Jamie. Thanks. This is so fun. We're going to nerd out together like we have many, many times, but this time people get to witness it. Well, yeah. Thanks so much for that introduction, too. I don't know that I really thought about or knew about the years or all of that. I took it right off your website. Jamie, I think you've had a lot of, of sub-passions in your career, and this one is particularly potent because it's got you creating a whole new company. Tell me what... And tell the listeners, what really got you interested in working with this group of people and trying to find innovative ways to help folks with diabetes and prediabetes? Yeah, I guess it's probably similar to what a lot of naturopaths realize in practice is that we really want to help people make foundational changes that don't have them reliant on a supplement or reliant on medications. And we, of course, recognize really wholeheartedly the benefits of things like healthy amounts of movement healthy nutrition, sleep, stress management, all those foundational aspects of a lifestyle medicine. But some people have a hard time implementing it. I describe it often as sometimes like learning a new instrument or learning a new language where they really do need some coaching and some help. And if you wanted to learn a new instrument or a new language, you might be able to do it on your own. But sometimes it takes a little bit more work or a little bit more effort or you are successful for a month or two and then you're not successful for a little while. And I found that in practice, not every patient, but some patients would, after two or three months, come back in and be taking the supplements regularly or taking a medication, but not implemented the movement or dietary changes that we had wanted to or the sleep patterns that we had hoped to, or hoped to change. Um, 
And we started to focus on that less because their condition progressed more and more. And it was something that we talked about, but there wasn't as much focus on that. We focused more on supplements and medications. So to have somebody actually coach them or train them in a very effective way was really helpful. And the Diabetes Prevention Research Group at UBC was fantastically insightful for us in terms of the benefits of coaching. And that was something that I learned a lot about as I was researching how to help people make these changes, actually having a coach in your corner to text or email, the electronic communication is the little bits of that electronic communication is so fantastic. It's like Duolingo for metabolism. Little bits every day helps you continue to succeed in your goal. Whereas like seeing a naturopath, you know, even if it's once every two weeks or once every month, isn't always enough or more often than that, it's like once every two or three months. Yeah. So it's like this, one of the important things around being able to actually change your metabolism is to be consistent Mm -hmm. with the changes that you want to make, which is hard for humans. Totally. Yeah. It's hard to change our habits, right? But it can be so dramatic in terms of their improvement. And we've been in practice long enough that we've seen what happens when folks don't change habits. Like we've seen patients go down and have their health worsen. We've seen also patients that do change habits and we have a sense of that tipping point or where that trajectory can change and how it can really improve things. It's nice to do that in a fun and supportive way. So it's not a focus on the negative or anything. It's like a focus on the positive and how do we just take a little step forward every day or every week or something to to start to positively affect metabolism. And it affects Mm -hmm. so many aspects of our health, right? It affects heart disease. So Mm -hmm. we have better blood sugar management, helps with sleep, it helps with heart disease. And it has, you know, it kind of new, but since you invited me on the podcast, kind of dove a little bit more into how it affects brain health. Yeah. And huge benefits, like surprisingly, Mm -hmm. surprisingly good benefits. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I really thank you for having something that focuses on brain health and making us all pay a little bit more attention to it. And one of the things that really stands out in my mind around when working with folks with metabolic issues is that there is this goal in the background of this, that if you get your metabolic problem better under control, your whole life can be longer and your health span can be longer. So you're doing better with the time that you have and you might be extending the time that you have on this earth. And for us to really enjoy that time, our brains need to be functioning really well. I've seen you speak about the percentage of people with diabetes who have depression and other cognitive and mental health aspects of having diabetes. What are you guys seeing when you're working with patients that evolve? Are you guys seeing changes in mood markers or cognitive markers? Yeah, I think that's maybe something we could do better is tracking cognitive markers. Certainly when I talk to the health coaches and nurse practitioners that work with us, they note how happy people are. They note that they're better engaged. They've talked about having a lightness in their life or just seeing things from a better perspective. So all of that is, and that's something that you know, we see in practice as well when people improve us, when they're in less pain, when they're act- more active, when they're eating mm. better. There's all those, mm. all those benefits. So I think I would here I would rely probably on a bigger set of data. So when we look at systematic reviews and large-scale studies that look at the rates of depression and anxiety in folks that are diabetic and the rates of depression and anxiety in folks that are not, of course, it still exists, but it exists in much smaller numbers. And having read a little bit more recently or pouring through a little bit more data from the last years, there's actually data to tell us that, yeah, high blood sugar actually negatively impacts the biochemistry of the brain. We know that there's insulin resistance in peripheral tissues, so in your muscles, but that increased, you know, I'll read the title of one of the studies that I came across recently here. 
which is so that insulin resistance in brain alters dopamine turnover and causes behavioral disorders. So, and that's from March of 2023, where they looked at insulin resistance and the fact that patients with insulin resistance actually have an increased level of monoamine oxidase, which is a enzyme that breaks down monoamines like dopamine and norepinephrine and serotonin. So there's mm. less of those and key neurotransmitters around when there's insulin resistance in the brain. Oh, it's so interesting. Here's the Parkinson's moment. Every podcast, I have to eventually bring up Parkinson's, so I'm doing yeah. it er early here. But with the World Parkinson's Congress, there was a huge discussion about this common comorbidity between people with diabetes and people with Parkinson's. And there's a lot of commonality there where it's, it appears that if you have one, you're more likely to get the other, particularly if you have diabetes, that it's definitely yeah. increasing the risk of developing Parkinson's and probably in progression too. And so if you're seeing like dopamine turnover and monoamine oxidase inhibitor changes, you've got something that at least has a mode of action that could explain some of why that happens. For sure. And I, I think one of the things that I'm not very knowledgeable, so I'd lean on you for this, is how do we assess for dementia, cognitive dysfunction early? Yeah. So how do we try and catch that in someone that's 20 or 40 years old so that we can start to make some changes in their, right? It's like kind of like bone density. It's hard mm. to change bone density when somebody's in their 70s and dealing with osteopenia or osteoporosis. Mm. We want to be able to try and do that earlier. Mm -hmm. So even the tools for assessing cognitive health are, you know, they can be obvious problems when somebody's seeing mental decline, but maybe quite quite less obvious when somebody's really young. So yeah, I think that's like a million dollar question because by the time someone's symptomatic with dementia, they've probably had a lot of metabolic problems going on and a lot of neurological problems going on that they've been able to work around mm -hmm. and wouldn't even show up on most of the, as you, most of the tests that we do in office, like if we do a mini mental status exam or we do even like a mini Montreal cognitive assessment, a lot of people will do really well on that who you know, 10 years later have dementia. So I think what we're seeing actually is that those folks likely would have some evidence or not everybody, but some of those folks would have some evidence of peripheral insulin resistance yeah. that we can measure. So if we did fasting insulins more regularly, maybe even an insulin tolerance test, not every year, but every few years, especially if there's a family history of dementia or somebody's at higher risk, that's a way that we can you know, it's not a fantastic tool, but it's probably the best tool that we have currently to assess for potential insulin resistance in the brain by measuring mm -hmm. what's happening in the peripheral in the tissue. periphery. Yeah. Is there insulin resistance yeah. happening when somebody's in their 20 to 40 years old? Because then we can start to make some changes. And of course, they're not guaranteed to not have dementia or Alzheimer's, but we decrease the risk pretty substantially. Yeah. There was a study I wanted to mention to you. I, I actually hold up this to patients when I'm trying to make the point around getting their blood sugar under control. It's actually a 2005 study in neurology. They basically just looked at hemoglobin A1C. So for patients out there listening, that's uh, a three-month estimate of what your blood sugar levels have been. Jamie can give a much more beautiful and sophisticated analysis of what that actually means, but that's the short form. And they just looked at the correlation between brain cell loss, like so brain loss using MRI measurements of the intracranial mass of the brain, and then looked at people's hemoglobin A1C over time. And they found that there was a distinct relationship the higher that your A1C was, the smaller your brain was over time. So you're losing, oh. yeah, so you're losing like brain right. mass faster 
the best outcomes were in people who had their hemoglobin A1C at 4.4 to 5.2. But the difference, it's like probably a doubling of the brain atrophy loss in the folks that were over 5.9 compared to people under 5.2. Blue smokes. Because those aren't even like ridiculously high numbers. No. No. (laughs) Although to be fair, the 5.9 plus group went up to nine. So some of them were like really high. But But that's not unheard of. Like, I mean, when we look at folks that are managing diabetes, if they're under seven, they're often told that this is okay, that it's good. And maybe it's okay for today and maybe it's okay for this week or this month. But when we look at maintaining that, yeah, I think we are seeing that Again, I'm not an expert in in brain health at all, but from what you've said there and from what I've looked at here, it definitely seems like as we become more insulin resistant, not only do our muscles and nerves in the periphery start to suffer, but of course the nerves in the central nervous system, so your brain, starts to suffer over time. And by the time we're able to pick up on it with the mini mental status exams or imaging, it there's a lot of damage that's already happened. And of course, nerve tissue heals really slowly. So if we catch that when we're in our 60s or 70s, it's hard or impossible to kind of reverse that and start to see those brain that brain tissue heal, even if we get blood sugar levels in line. We can slow the decline, which is still a big win, but it's hard to have that nervous system tissue heal well. I'll read a, a little bit of an introduction to, a, to an article that came out in April of 2023 in the Journal of, of the American Geriatric Society. So in prospective studies, diabetes confers a greater than 80% increase in risk for all-cause dementia and Alzheimer's disease, and a greater than 180 increase in risk for vascular dementia. So Mm. to sum that up, that's a, that means that someone with diabetes mellitus type one or type two will have an increased risk of poor brain health by 80 to 180%, which blew me away. I did not realize that it was that significant. Being more of an expert in brain health, have you seen something else that triggers an increase in risk in poor brain health by that much? No, no, I don't think I have. I I know that there's some big effect size to certain types of eating styles. Like if a person is eating enormous amounts of highly ultra-processed foods, there's increased risk, but nothing that was quantified like this and certainly nothing that had that big of an effect size. Even if you look at the risk that I was mentioning, like the ultra-processed food intake, that could be feeding into the diabetes risk. Like it could all be one of the same animal in a sense. And it does really highlight, so there's this movement in, it's in Parkinson's world, it's definitely in the dementia world to look at these illnesses as more of a metabolic disease with a neurological consequence. Mm -hmm. Great way to phrase that. Yeah. And so this is coming from multiple neurodegenerative research bodies where they're realizing that most brain health problems are actually um, systemic. They're not just Mm -hmm. happening in the brain. Like Mm -hmm. depression, depression is now generally recognized thankfully, as a systemic illness, not just happening in the brain. Parkinson's is now in that category. Alzheimer's dementia is definitely in that category. That there's things going on like across the board from like gut health and your general metabolic health that are playing into this overall metabolic change that creates the, the basically the opportunity for these things to start to go awry. And so in your work, I think one of the brilliant things around Evolve that is 
you said this at the very beginning, and I want to underline it, is that we underestimate how hard it is to make lifestyle changes as a society. I don't think you and I do, because you and I see it over and over again. But Yeah, I mean, I think there's yeah. still probably a little bit of a lack of understanding or some misunderstandings in terms of you never know exactly what's going on in a patient's brain or what it's like to be in their shoes, whether it's the illnesses they're dealing with or their stresses, they're taking care of their parents, they're taking care of kids. There's all sorts of factors. So it's not, we never know exactly what's happening with people or why they're not implementing changes that we see as being helpful for them. We always, as humans, we seem to want to have these magic bullets. We always want to have that yeah. one pill or that herb or that surgery or whatever that's going to fix it. We don't have to do anything else. But it seems like we're getting to this point of realizing that, especially with longer term chronic illnesses, in, in the world of like the neurodegenerative illnesses, that this is something that's been, you know, in a slow burn for a really long time and probably relates to a bunch of things, including like things in our environment that we have no control over, but then a lot of things that we do have control over. And the difficulty of making the changes that would be most productive is in part because you have to be consistent. You have to do it in, it's a day-to-day -day practice. It doesn't have to be perfect every day, but it's a day-to-day -day practice. And what you're doing with Evolve is you're getting people additional support to be able to start to learn how to do that in a day-to-day -day manner. And they're doing the thing that, like you might have some data on this that would be really interesting to hear, which is they're doing things that have an effect size that I think is pretty damn big. Like when you look at the effect size of diet, for instance, compared to the effect size of metformin or some other diabetes intervention, I'm assuming diet's actually a lot bigger than we realize, but I don't know if that's true. Do you have a sense of that? If we look at diet and lifestyle changes, how big of an effect size does that actually make in diabetes? Oh, it's it's bigger than metformin. We'll see folks be able to reduce medications. Those medications will work better at lower dosages. And we're seeing an impact positively other aspects of their life. Whereas being on metformin doesn't improve depression, doesn't hmm. improve sleep when we make those lifestyle changes, we're seeing improvements in relationships. We see improvements in sleep. We see improvements in mood in ways that medications don't. I think that's the most impactful for me or one of the things that I really like about trying to encourage people or help people in, in little ways to, to understand what metabolism means. I think there's maybe while it's being talked about a lot more, I think there's still maybe a little bit of improved communication that we can we can offer to to patients around, yeah, what does it mean to improve your metabolic health? Or if dementia is mm. a metabolic disease, what does that actually mean? It's almost easier to mm. understand it as a brain disease as opposed to a metabolic disease when we start talking about, you know, your body being made up of 75 trillion cells. It's hard to wrap your brain around that. And the energy consumption of each of those cells, they're like little factories. And the more active they are, the more sugar, the more glucose they're going to burn. And that helps you just keeping your blood sugar levels in check if your cells are more metabolically active and that metabolism is affected by the foods you eat and by the activity that you do. So explaining that in, in ways that, that patients can understand can be really helpful in terms of understanding that, oh yeah, this is going to really impact, or this is going to decrease my risk of developing dementia or Alzheimer's disease because mm. my parents suffered in that way, or I took care of my grandmother or aunt or uncle who, who suffered with dementia and I don't mm. want that to happen to me. Yeah. And it, when you guys work with patients where you're trying to make these lifestyle changes that are largely diet exercise 
exposure to nature, those types of changes. I'm assuming that part of the success is, as you mentioned, like it's the number of touch points that you have with somebody to help encourage them to keep going. And how do you guys do that? What is the, what's the approach that happens for people? So health coaches, the health coaches that we utilize and, and work with evolve are nurses that have a real passion for connecting with people and nurses overall, I think are just I love nurses. <laughs> like they're so I love nurses too. <laughs> they're so knowledgeable. They have the the desire to like really connect with people. They have a desire to really see them move forward in meaningful ways and have just a way about asking the right questions and and helping to pull the right levers to navigate somebody's health challenges. And so that's, I think, one of the things that we do successfully is having nurses run as health coaches. The other thing is using text and email as a support. So, of course, there's virtual meetings where you can see the, the coach's face and all that, which is helpful. Uh, but also being able to ask a question when you're at the grocery store and you're wondering what kind of bread it is to use the app that we have and to type in a question. We're not going to be on 24-7 where you get a response right away, but you have the opportunity to ask that question right away. And then the health coach will see that the next day and, and be able to respond and guide you effectively. And so, again, it's like having that coach in your corner or being able to practice just the fact that you're thinking about it and communicating about the choice in carbohydrates with mm. somebody solidifies the learning process. That's an important piece. They're not having to save it all up. They're not keeping a note of every question they want to ask their naturopath or their dietitian or whatever. They're just like in real time, having a moment of confusion and knowing that they can just put it out there and they'll get an answer eventually. That's a high touch point kind of care where it matters. Cause it, like, that's where the lifestyle changes happen. They happen when you're in the grocery store. <laughs> right. So it gets people thinking and then the next trips can be, can be a little different and that's really helpful using continuous glucose monitors, which have their pros and cons of course, but is a really effective way for our coaches to be insightful about where somebody can adjust their diet or their movement in the most effective way. So if we can consistently see that somebody's blood sugar level is spiking at 11 a.m. or between 11 and 1, then we focus on that time frame and what are they eating for their breakfast at like 10 or 10.30, as opposed to then focusing on all the meals of the day. Mm -hmm. Where can we be the most tactful for somebody to move those small levers. If their blood sugar levels are, are higher after dinner, then some instruction around movement post that dinner meal can really help lower those blood sugar levels as they as they move on through the night. So again, that's mm -hmm. that's a really effective way that coaches can look at glucose readings with a continuous glucose monitor and positively inform somebody about what they need to do. And then the mm -hmm. patient can track their blood sugar levels really closely for, you know, two weeks and then not have to wear that glucose monitor for another month or two months and then maybe recheck on it down the line. But that's another way that we can be really informative to catch blood sugar issues earlier so that we decrease the risk of things like cardiovascular disease. And as we're learning dementia and cognitive decline that are harder to measure. Yeah. So, and, and you're individualizing care. So I'm assuming that not everybody responds to their breakfast and supper the same way. And obviously what they eat changes too, but you're visualizing the care for that patient using the CGM. Yeah, it's great. I mean, like any technology or any wearable device, it's not for everybody. There's pros and cons. But again, our goal is to have people use it for a short period of time, gain some good insights, and then take the learnings with them for the rest of their life, right? So they're, mm. it's like a, a teaching moment. And having that objective marker, seeing the blood sugar graph and seeing that it's elevated post-meal really helps with that behavior change. You'll really see that change. And then you can see the benefits of the change in your behavior, right? So you have mm -hmm. something different for breakfast and you're 
more active in a certain week. And you'll see those positive changes. And that's also reinforcing, which is helpful. So there's multiple reinforcement because then you've got your coach encouraging youth by answering your questions and getting those day-to-day, I almost want to call them speed bumps that make it hard to change. You've got someone who's reinforcing for you that, yeah, I'm, I'm here. I gotcha. Right. You have this opportunity to see, well, what works in me as a human being? And it's so true. Like as soon as you see a piece of data that's about you, that you can shift through some action, those are profound moments for folks. Yeah. Those are, those aha moments are, yeah, are real instigators of change and they really yeah. do kind of stick with somebody long-term and there's huge benefits to seeing, to seeing us facilitate that. Yeah. And then they take a break from a CGM, which sounds like a good idea. You could get mm-hmm. anxious about your numbers, but then the people go back and see, well, how is it going now? Yeah. It's a really brilliant way to, to approach trying to change something that's really hard to change. Yeah. And we'll see then the benefits three months down the line with lower levels of the fasting glucose or the A1C. So we still need to do these tests. We still need to track insulin resistance and, and is that happening? And one of the things that I'm so grateful for in terms of this opportunity was it really did get me to think a little bit more about the impact of blood sugar on brain health. Mm. And again, I'm incredibly surprised, a little disheartened, but also, <laughs> but surprised at the number there. Again, that just the fact that folks with diabetes do have this significant 80 to 180% increase in a risk for cognitive decline. One of the, I suppose, silver linings to so many people being affected by diabetes. So 1.5 million people in British Columbia or so. Um, wow. And projections worldwide is 1.5 billion by 2025. One of the silver linings oh of that is that there's a lot of data. There's a lot of people mm-hmm. and we can learn a lot and then start to really change things in a positive way. From what I learned here is that, you know, I was also surprised by numbers once when I went to a, a lung health talk by a respirologist and he asked the audience what we thought the increased risk some would incur if they smoked. So pack a day, 20 years, what's their increased risk of developing lung cancer? Of course, some people who don't smoke will develop lung cancer, but if you did smoke, what would the increased risk be? And there was like silence throughout this. It was a relatively small room. So I said like 60%. And it was like, no, it's lower. But he informed us that it was 15 to 30%. And hmm. I was surprised by how low it was. Most hmm. lung cancers occur in smokers. So we, again, we shouldn't smoke. But when we look at the increased risk, I was surprised by that. And for some reason, reading these numbers around cognitive decline and diabetes, I realized that I think having elevated blood sugar levels to your brain is worse than smoking is to your lungs. Sure sounds like it, Jamie. Looking at lifestyle approaches to care for whether it's depression or any neurodegenerative condition and even autoimmune conditions of the nervous system like MS is how much we underestimate and really ignore the massive value of diet and exercise even just if you just took those two out, the effect size of those compared to the things that we think of like an antidepressant or a Parkinson's drug, don't get me wrong, those are really important. But when you're looking at effect size over time for a big endpoint, like delayed onset of symptoms, Mm -hmm. there's nothing performing like diet does. There's nothing performing like exercise does. And the one other thing I would wonder about And this is, again, a little outside of our discussion here, but I think this relates to diabetes a bit, which is the risk that is associated with adverse childhood events 
and how that could feed into these other risks like developing diabetes, developing, like we know folks right. with par Parkinson's who have high ACE scores, they progress faster. Why do wow. they progress faster? Is it because they have a harder time with managing their, their lifestyle because they're having a hard time with executive function or something that like, right. what is, what is going on mm -hmm. there? And what are the, like, how do you connect the dots? And I think that the part of the reason that we're not good at it is that it, it just doesn't get the same level of research. So we don't pay attention to it the way we do a drug. And, and then the approach to care is so hard. You know, when you started off talking about this, you're, you basically said it's hard even for naturopaths who spend a lot of time with their patients to help people make the lifestyle adjustments they need to make. And I think coaching will be utilized more and more to help people do that. At first, when I was talking to folks from the Diabetes Prevention Research Group at UBC and the thought of using coaching to facilitate what we wanted to do with Evolve, because it started as a, oh, I see these patients, they need a little extra help. How can we provide an avenue? And it became, it started as just a brainstorming session. How can we facilitate this a little better? And maybe it's, you know, a separate ND program or something like that. And I was introduced to Megan McPherson, who was doing her PhD at the time at the Diabetes Prevention Research Group. And we started thinking about using coaching because they had run some studies on using coaching, not using CGMs, but through a YMCA and mm -hmm. Clona, knowing that people had elevated A1C, let's use coaching to help them make diet and movement changes and saw significant drops in A1C numbers as they track them just with that text communication, just knowing That's that it. they had somebody in their corner working with them, some general diet and exercise and movement guidelines that they would follow but positive encouragement, motivational interviewing, positive movement and food changes happening for folks and saw a reduction in A1C. I think that's... Can I ask you a question about that study? Was the difference in hemoglobin A1C similar to the differences or compared to the differences with metformin? Oh, I don't know. I don't. In that study, I don't think it was. I think they just okay. looked to see if there was a reduction. There have been other studies that compared activity changes to metformin itself. Interestingly, Small pilot studies have looked at the use of diabetes medications. So another study that's interesting is a study that is titled, Is it time to repurpose geroprotective diabetes medications for prevention of dementia? So can we use diabetes medications to help prevent or decrease cognitive decline? And metformin doesn't seem to do that. Insulin does. So for folks that have used, who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's, using in the study, it was a small pilot study that used intranasal insulin. Oh, interesting. Um, they measured a slow, a, a decrease in the progression of the small numbers. So that'll spark hopefully some more research so we, we get some better data on that. So mm -hmm. again, it really just speaks to the point that better blood sugar control improves brain health yeah. now, but also in the future. Yeah. And so there's good benefits to folks that are worried about cognitive decline or have a family history of cognitive decline or are concerned about that to talk to their healthcare providers about how do we screen for blood sugar problems now so that we can start to implement some change and that'll benefit me five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years down the line. And I think that's probably if there's patients that are listening or folks that are interested in preserving cognitive function, slowing down cognitive decline, probably an important take-home message would be how do I healthily look at my diet and activity patterns to make some positive changes before we all go on the lower blood sugar is better? Because of course, that's not the case either. There's mm -hmm. always a balance. So of course, high blood sugar levels very clearly are bad for brain health. So are low blood sugar levels. And in 2022, there was actually a systematic review 
that looked at 1.4 million people and they looked at hypoglycemic events. So they looked at low blood sugar events in diabetics. And the more low blood sugar events, they were significant low blood sugar events. So these are people that ended up in a care setting or ended up having an EMR, EMT come to, come to them. So they were significant lows. But the more significant the low blood sugar events and the more lows they had, the worse their brain health was. So they saw that there was an increased risk of cognitive decline in diabetics who continuously had one, two serious hypoglycemic events a year that happened. They had cognitive decline. So they were looking more on the proper use of medications to make sure we don't lower blood sugar levels too much for folks or making sure that they're used appropriately. But that would be important for us too, of course, is to make sure that yeah, our blood sugar levels, we don't want them to be too high, but when they're too low, this is also a problem. So in, in a sense, it's manage it, but don't overmanage it. Like so many things, right? Yeah. Got to yeah. drink enough water a day. But if you're drinking a ton of water, of course, that's going to, right? Like there's a limit. <laughs> my mother always used to say everything about, my mother was a nurse. So pro probably that's part of my reason for my finesse. So is my mother-in-law. But she would always say, if there's one thing that my mother said throughout my childhood that has stuck, it was that everything in moderation. Yeah. Right. Something that's good can become a problem if you do it too often or if you use that too often. We want to make sure that there's some moderation in there. I think. I've often thought of this as one of the essentials to brain health is consistent fueling of the brain. It, I don't mean like exquisite consistent fueling, but I mean, people have that experience where they know their brain doesn't work that well when their blood sugar is dropping. If they're hangry, you know, they're watching their mood get affected. I've witnessed in family members that will remain nameless that even eating at that time becomes hard because their brains aren't thinking clearly, but exactly what they need is the food. They want some blood sugar. You know, the brain cells just don't do well with extremes of blood sugar. Right. And it's such a high metabolic organ. It needs to be fueled well all the time. Yep. And then that, that knock-on effect too with, with diabetes is that vascular dementia risk really stands out to me because mm -hmm. we're talking about dementia generally, but vascular dementia, 180% increase. In yeah. vascular dementia, if you have diabetes, it tells you so much about how hard that is on blood vessels in general, and then just how important that type of health is for your brain again, because it's about delivering nutrients to your brain and getting that consistent fuel and resources. So you create so many knock-on risks with diabetes for brain health specifically. And so they, I love the deconstructing that's happening around the brain is not just this orb that's completely mm. immune to everything else we do, that it's actually completely affected by our bodies because it exists in our bodies. Yeah. And that it can be affected by, essentially, we could think of it as like biochemical trauma, the yeah. trauma of having blood sugar levels too high, too consistently or too low, too frequently causes a little bit of damage to the brain tissue and because our nerves, brain included, of course, doesn't heal well from trauma, even those little onslaughts of biochemical trauma, it's not going to heal the way our muscles would or, or our bones would. And the more significant those traumas, the more frequently they occur, the worse that brain health is going to be or the more significant that cognitive decline would be. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Might relate a little bit more to your practice, but when you do see folks who are dealing with some cognitive decline um, or memory issues do you get messages across? Are there adjustments that you've had to make to 
inform them and have those messages stick? Repeat. I repeat so much more. So I'll, if I would normally say something three times to someone that I didn't think had any cognitive impairment, I would probably say it at least six times to someone with uh, observable cognitive impairment. And I would, I lower my expectations for what that person is actually going to be able to hold and don't expect them to remember it the next time. So when working with folks clear of cognitive challenges, and I would say my most common experience with this is working with folks with Parkinson's who are starting to have more of the, the cognitive loss that happens as they advance. And it's definitely approaching it from the perspective of repeating the message and leaning on environmental cues. So encouraging them to set up their life so that there's environmental cues to remind them of things that they need to do for their health. You know, it can be like phone reminders, things next to a toothbrush, something on the fridge, or before you go to bed, you have your running shoes out in the morning. So it's like obvious you're going to go for your walk, whatever ways they can in, in a sense, you make the, the choices easier, more of a downhill choice than an uphill choice. Mm-hmm. And the expectation as a clinician is really that not only do I repeat this a lot, it's totally fine if you forgot what I said. And I will happily repeat myself a hundred times without getting frustrated because I know this is part of the condition. I think those are some of the, maybe the practice things. I do also with all Parkinson's patients, so definitely check their hemoglobin A1Cs definitely anybody with a cognitive impairment thing going on and more from the perspective that we're slowing stuff down. I would be so curious if with, with you guys at Evolve, if you're seeing some step backwards away from cognitive problems, I know you're not doing any organized tracking at this point in time and you may never choose to do so, but it would be so interesting to see what happens as you are successful because what your intervention is so different from metformin. Your intervention is something that has just so many knock-on side benefits. Yeah. And we don't discourage the use of using metformin or Zenpic if it's needed or other blood sugar lowering agents. Our goal is really to, if somebody needs those, to have them work better at lower dosages or Mm. to work more effectively at their job because we're doing our job or we're improving Mm -hmm. the baseline health of those 75 trillion or so cells that we mm-hmm. that we have in our body. So we want to be as as if we're going to do an intervention, whether it's acupuncture or using a supplement or using a medication, we kind of want those to work as best they can at the lowest frequency and lowest dose. That's the benefit of lifestyle medicine approach to, to managing things like blood sugar. And I think it's smoke, spoken like a true naturopath. Yeah, well, I have been at it for 19 years. Thanks for pointing that out. I didn't uh, realize that I was that old, but... You you are, Jamie. You are. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I guess another maybe question or interest that I have in terms of your practice and focus on brain health is when you do see folks, because you do see some families as well, how do we approach the children of folks dealing with dementia in terms of dealing with that? Because again, our screening tools are not great. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could do a mini mental status exam with the children of people, but we're not. It actually comes down to, I think that the big thing is diving into the risk factors that mm. they have control over. Knowing mm. that if you live long enough as a human, you have a good chance of getting dementia. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great like, way to like, look at it. Like so, So eventually, this is one of the ways we go out. It's almost a race between the brain and the kidneys sometimes. And, and because we're living longer, the folks that have parents who developed a cognitive impairment problem in their 70s, 
you know, their parents might have just been looking at five or six years of cognitive impairment, but their children might be looking at 10 or 15 years of cognitive impairment because we're just better at living longer now. Mm-hmm. And I use that information as motivation. And and I think the things that that they need to do are like things like what we're talking about today. Like they do need to get their blood sugars regulated if they're off. And if they're really off, they need to get the help of a place like Evolve where they're going to have someone walk with them through these through these approaches. But we also need to check things like, are you inflamed? Are you, what's your, what's your diet? Like what's your exercise practices? Like, are you sleeping? Well, we know that all of those things, are you connected to community? That's a really big one, actually. Mm -hmm. That's probably the biggest risk factor for faster progression for at least dementia, possibly for Parkinson's is being lonely. So, and we know that people who are not in community are more at risk for so many mental health and neurological conditions. So I think I, I really just walk them through with, this is what we do know. And if we know that you are higher risk, then it makes more sense to actually get going on this now. I would think it's a healthy and and good postulate to say that even if your A1Cs are not high, but there's erratic blood sugar levels that you're dealing with, they may not be, you may not be diagnosed as having diabetes. If there's erratic blood sugar levels, that's still bad for brain health. Maybe it doesn't increase mm-hmm. your risk by 80 to 180%. Maybe you're mm-hmm. down at 60 or 40, but that's still pretty significant. And yeah. Insulin resistance is a, such a strong link to that. And there are good ways to test for that in peripheral tissue. So fasting glucose, A1C, still fantastic test to get done. But if there's a thought about increased risk, looking at insulin resistance would be would be important. Yeah. And so do you do that with, at Evolve? Do you do a fasting insulin with most patients that come in? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. we'll do as part of a general screen or first, yeah. first blood test screen, and then we'll track that and look for improvements. And there's still... Lots more that we could glean from that, better accuracy and looking at the ratio of your fasting insulin to the fasting glucose in larger population groups. And But we could certainly see that fasting insulin level be too high and see it come down as we improve with lifestyle and medications will help with that too. So if there's need to improve that with medications, of course, that's a useful thing to do and something that we should do. It feels like one of the take-homes from our conversation today is one that it is very important to for your long-term cognitive health, at least. But we know whole body health to address elevated blood sugars and borderline situations. And as you said, like early insulin resistance has consequences. And I think the other thing that you're saying in terms of what you're seeing at Evolve is that how you approach that matters. And, and it matters in part because having regular encouragement helps people change. And you and I are constantly probably fascinated with, I mean, I know I am personally, and I'm pretty sure you are too, like just absolutely fascinated with what facilitates change in people. Yeah, it's, it is fascinating <laughs> to what is that, that lever that we can pull on or move in an effective way, in a gentle way, in a kind way, and all of those, all of those things. Yeah, I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated. But when I think about myself, when I think about people that I know, when I think about patients, it's all, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and so that coaching element, I think, a lot of people would be really relieved to hear that, where that coaching and encouragement is part of the solution. Because then it's less about a personal failing and more about how we actually do better when we're well supported. Yeah. It, it, I think we're, I think thankfully, hopefully, we're moving beyond the blame around blood sugar problems. There's, yeah. I mean, we haven't even touched on like the bigger aspect of our food supply and marketing and all of that, like the addictive nature of sugar and 
the settling of our body into sometimes sedentary states because of work habits and lifestyle and all, all of that, right? It's such a bigger societal question to look at how do we manage blood sugar levels when people have to commute far distances to work. And that's like two or three hours and there's child caring. And like you already mentioned, poor food choices when your blood sugar levels are low. Yeah, we are hardwired to kind of like sugar marketing of food and access to those sugary foods is so in your face and we can get addicted to those things. I think we're at the beginning of some really positive changes with blood sugar management. So Jamie, how would people find out about Evolve? Like how would they, how would they find out more about what you guys are doing? That's a great question. So they would go to our website. So evolvemedical.co. I'm sure we'll post a link. We will post um, a link in the podcast. We'll put a link to maybe some of the studies that we talked about too. Um, yeah, hundred percent. Interested? Yeah. Um, and they could talk to their healthcare provider. So most naturopaths in BC will know a little bit about us, and those would be great places. And do they need a referral to come in to you guys, or can they well, self-refer? They can self-refer. So they yeah, if they go to our okay. website. Yeah, they don't need a referral. We're happy to work with healthcare providers. We're happy to share any blood tests that we order. We're happy to communicate with any health, other healthcare providers that a person might have. Healthcare practitioners can also refer to us. So if there's a healthcare practitioner that want to learn mo more about us on the website, and they can also book what we call discovery calls, also with a link on the website, so that they can talk to an Evolve team member and find out a little bit more about us. And that's whether they're healthcare providers or patients. That's brilliant. All yeah. right. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to come on to the Well-Nurtured Brain. And I'm really thrilled that you said yes. <laughs> Thank you. I'm thrilled to be asked. And I love that we just got to chat for an hour. That's lovely. And thanks for making me think about brain health more. You're so welcome. We'll have you back in a year or so right. and you can give us more information. would love to. Big thanks again to Dr. Jamie DeMello for joining me on today's podcast. I wanted to go through five main points that I thought we made over that discussion that I think are really helpful to remind you all of. The first one is that blood sugar and insulin resistance literally affects brain health. How much control you have over your blood sugars literally has an effect on your brain health over time. Number two is that identifying insulin resistance and treating it significantly reduces your dementia risk. Number three, the value of coaching or of some way to encourage perseverance and grit in the face of the difficulties of creating change in lifestyle medicine and lifestyle interventions like diet and exercise. Dr. Jamie's work at Evolve is really demonstrating the value of coaches or having some kind of persistent support network in for people to make the changes that they need to improve diabetes, to improve insulin resistance, and essentially, over time, we know we're probably also affecting those folks' brain health by encouraging them to do those important changes in their health. Number four is that factoid that I think I just want to highlight, which is that if you have diabetes, you have an 80% increased risk of dementia and a 180% increased risk of vascular dementia. Those are really big numbers, and Dr. Jamie's right to say that's astonishing and important and probably one of the very few things out there that we can say carries that high of a risk of dementia. And then number five is that lifestyle and dietary changes make big effects on overall health and probably more so than diabetes medications alone. 
So if we can add in lifestyle interventions to metformin, to insulin, we get bigger, better changes than just the, the medication alone, and that these changes have tremendous side benefits. And one of those side benefits, my smack dab in the center of brain health. I hope you all have a wonderful holiday season. I'm wishing you all the best in 2024. We have a whole new season coming, and I'm so looking forward to delivering it to you all. So with that, we're signing off on our 2023 season. Don't forget, be kind to your mind. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Well-Nurtured Brain. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe and share this podcast. Spread the word about brain health to your friends and family. They'll thank you. The content of this podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice, nor should it be considered as such. If something discussed today seems applicable to you, please seek the assistance of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. Thanks again for listening.